Making a high quality product or piece of furniture is not enough. You need more than that to have a sustainable business. You know, that's kind of like a minimum. I don't mean that to sound deflating. It's more just like being realistic about what it would take to have longevity. That's the voice of Kyle Kidwell, owner of Kidwell Fabrications. And I'm excited to talk with him right after a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Jobber. Jobber is software to organize and manage your business. From quoting a project to getting paid to everything in between, Jobber software brings everything together to make projects easy to manage and customers happy, giving you more time in your day and getting you paid faster. Go to getjobber.com Ethan or check out the link in the show notes for a free 14-day trial of Jobber and if you try it now, you get 20% off your first six months when you sign up. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Kyle Kidwell, owner of the Portland, Maine-based furniture company, Kidwell Fabrications. During his two decades of building, Kyle has found a way to stand out in the crowd. With his furniture collection of signature pieces and a custom portfolio filled with overjoyed clients, he and his company have truly made a name for themselves over the years. Starting in the world of carpentry, he refined his skills both in furniture making and in business to build the company that we see today. Follow along as we talk about finding your space in the industry, how to replicate your pieces but still keep their soul, why interior designers can be your best friends, and much more. Kyle's story of pursuing his passion is a journey of understanding oneself, a story of setting the right things in motion to reach one's goals, a story that's better told in his own words. There are key memories I can think of as a kid that I always kind of come back to. There's a stool I made for my mom when I was, I think I was like six or seven. And there were just some boards in the garage uh, that didn't need to be cut, or at least not according to me. And I had a hammer and nails and just kind of smashed it together and gave it to my mom. And I was super proud and she was super proud. And, you know, that was probably my earliest memory. And then I got into skateboarding when I was like 11 or 12. And again, we had just some random materials in our garage, some plywood somehow, I don't really remember how and I made obstacles for skateboarding. So that was like a bank to ride up and down, do tricks and then boxes. And that kind of sparked some interest. And then if you fast forward into first years of college, I started getting into carpentry, which I always feel like there's a lot of overlap between carpentry and furniture, not, not everywhere, but just as far as manipulating materials and using tools and stuff like that. So in college, I was really getting into carpentry stuff, but still furniture as well. Um, friends and family will ask if you can make something or, you know, they have ideas about what they might want. I had stuff I wanted. I made um, a loft bed for myself in college and that was super fun. And, you know, through the college years, it was kind of sporadic furniture stuff, but more and more exposure to tools and, the carpentry side of things. And then right out of college, a friend of mine who was a year ahead of me graduating 
was really serious about carpentry and he basically approached me to do a partnership with him where we were 50-50 partners and we started a company called Level Construction and that was in Virginia. You know, I was 22 and equal partner um, with my friend and that was, you know, again, not directly furniture stuff, but it is a taste of being self-employed and working with clients and pricing and bidding. It was really pivotal for just getting a taste of that and and liking it, you know, liking the the control you can have when you work for yourself. So again, still making furniture, I would have tools set up in the garage, like a contractor table saw and a miter saw and got a router table and just kept experimenting with simple pieces, little tables, or I made an armoire for my sister that at the time I thought was amazing. And now I look back on it, it's pretty terrible. But um, so the carpentry stuff just continued on out of college. And then I moved to New York City in 2007. So I did the carpentry thing for about four years, moved to New York, I was actually trying to do music when I moved there. That was my goal. I wasn't pursuing um, self-employment there. I was just trying to be in the city and try to do music and just see what comes of it. But then inevitably my work, the way I paid the bills was woodworking stuff. So I started working at a frame shop in, in Manhattan. It was for like furniture galleries and museums. And that was super cool. I didn't have any experience making picture frames really. Um, and it's a pretty specific skill set. But again, it's just more exposure to tools and seeing, you know, that was actually really interesting for seeing uh, the way spaces are done. Like sometimes we do deliveries in a client's house and you'd see like studio furniture in these people's homes because it was Manhattan. I realize now that that was leaving an impression. And so I'd moonlight in the shop, sometimes the frame shop, because they had standard equipment and I would start making more pieces then. And then I kind of crossed over as far as my passion. I started becoming, uh, you know, I had been doing carpentry, even in New York days, I would go back home to Virginia on visits and do some stuff at my mom's house or something like that. Uh, still doing carpentry all the way through, but then New York, after making some pieces there, I realized that I didn't like being on job sites and dealing with other trades and handling all that. And I really preferred being in the shop and working on pieces just start to finish that really convinced me that that was what was right. So then I met my wife in New York and I was getting very stir crazy. I couldn't figure out a way to have like a dedicated shop space in New York. I felt like there was too many things that had to go right for me to pull it off. So then we started thinking about leaving New York and we wanted to start a family and own a home. And so the combination of that and me wanting to start doing furniture full time kind of was the catalyst for leaving. So then when we got to Portland, that was 2014, Portland, Maine, then I just started going crazy, just buying machines and taking as many side projects as I could. There was another key chapter there where I, I basically worked at a furniture shop for a couple of years. And that was huge just for being in a, a established shop. It's a shop that's been around for over 30 years and, and seeing how they do things. And it was my first exposure to CNC. I was really curious to see what that could do. And it allowed me to work in the shop and make a paycheck and then 
continue to moonlight and side hustle and buy machines for my own shop. So uh, after a couple years, I felt like I had enough machines and enough job leads to make the jump. That is quite the journey that you just yeah. took us on. And listening to it sounds like a lot of work, but living it was probably also just as much work. As, as somebody who is very familiar with having a furniture company and shop space and working in New York, I don't blame you for uh, moving on out and, and going to a different place with maybe a little bit of a slower pace of life. I was watching some videos of your stuff and on one of these videos, it was kind of a, a throwaway line that you put out there, but you you said building something from nothing. And I've heard that a million times. Every, everybody who talks about building furniture has at one point said that cliche line, but for some reason, it really stuck out for me this time. And I was thinking about it and thinking about what that really means. and the idea of building your own furniture company, something that wasn't a real thing before you actually built it. I wanted to talk with you about how you you really think about that concept, the idea of building something from nothing with furniture and with the business. Yeah, I mean, it, it's true. I agree with you. I, many people have said that's what draws them to it, building something from nothing. And I am reluctant to phrase it that way, but it's it's just happens to be particularly true for me. Not not more true for me than for others, but it, you can kind of distill everything down to that concept because you know. To so if I circle back to college days, my my degrees in political science, and uh, all the people that I saw graduating were moving into careers in D.C. or staffers for people in Congress and working for the State Department. And I was always kind of troubled at the idea that I could put in all this work towards something and not be able to trace the results of that work. So to me, there are a lot of careers where if I were to do it, I would just kind of scratch my head like, what am I, what am I doing? What am I working toward? What is this? What are the uh, results of my effort? And so in the furniture world, it's so direct. You know, if you go into the shop and you start with some rough sawn boards and you machine them down and manipulate them and turn them into something that looks like furniture, there's such a clear line between your effort and what came from it. And so that for me, just it's it's self-evident why that would make sense for me. You know, I, I need to know that I'm getting something for the effort and that's what furniture provides. Does that, does that make sense? That makes total sense. And that is, that's a feeling that a lot of people have. And, and, and that, I don't want to say immediate gratification because it takes a long time to build things, but that gratification of starting with raw materials and end of the day, end of the week, end of the month, however long it takes you to build something, standing in front of it and, and having that actual piece of furniture that you've given it life and then it it does its own thing and it goes yeah. off with a client it goes to 
a store, it goes somewhere else and has its own life without you. And you put all the work you can into it. And then it's a real thing that exists in the world. Yeah. I, and I th that, that to me, there's a, there's almost like a, uh, there's an accessibility to furniture for most people, certainly for me and a lot of the clients and designers, whoever's asking for it, you know, people in, in some sense or another understand what furniture is for. You know, I'm, I, there are other ways people can handle woodworking. You can do more like sculptural artistic stuff where it's, it kind of stands alone. It doesn't have an, a ostensible function. But for most of us, the things I make, you know, everybody can look at a piece I've made like, you know, that's a chair, that's a table, that's a desk, and I know what to do with it. And uh, I need one, you know, and that to me is, is there's like an honesty to that, that I'm drawn to for sure. Let's talk about some of the pieces that you make and you do custom commissions, but I want to talk about your line of furniture, your collection of furniture. Looking through it, you have an impressive reach of pieces. A lot of chairs on there. You have a lot of tables, bedside tables. There, There's a lot of stuff that you have going on. How do you keep the consistency of building each and every piece? Because you have a two-person shop, you have, you have employees, but it's not a manufacturing process. It's not a manufacturing plant. Each piece is handmade, but it has to reflect what people are buying in the picture. So what's your process of replicating pieces for your collection? Yeah, that's a great question. And I can say that I'm confident the pieces are made the same way every time, but the way I go about it is kind of unorthodox. There are aspects that are very traditional. Like I, so for chairs, for example, I rely heavily on patterns and templates. And so that makes it really great for um, having them all be the same way. But then say for having an employee try to step in and, and, and make those pieces, what I end up doing is I make the piece, like say a prototype, the first one or two, and I, there's definitely some improvising going on. So I guess if I go back even further, the, what I do typically is I obsess about a new concept or a new piece just in my head. Uh, and that can happen at any minute or hour of the day. It could be uh, truly whenever, 3 a.m., dinner time. It just, it keeps coming, I go on this sort of repetitive cycle trying to figure out how to make this, I basically construct it in my head as far as I can take it in my head. I don't really like to use renderings, which again, I would say is the unorthodox part. Like I'm not very good at um, rendering. I, I use SketchUp when I have to. and. Um, a lot of the pieces, if you'll, you'll see like the, my signature pieces, I have a hard time drawing them on SketchUp. You know, you need like plugins and just knowledge that I just don't have yet. And I, I kind of hate doing it. Um, so I'll make a piece in the shop once I feel like I've figured out as much as I can in my head. And then I'm figuring out lots more details in the shop. And then somewhere along the way, the piece is done. And then I'm like, oh, now I need to document this piece, figure out what the angles are exactly, 
and the lengths and dimensions and thicknesses. Um, and I basically go to the piece after it's been made and kind of write it all down and create cut lists. And, and that is my sort of roundabout way of being able to do it all over again. So I have definitely kind of painted myself in a corner a few times where I'll make a piece and I'm happy with it. And I put it on the website and then someone will say, oh, I want one. I'm like, oh my God, I, I got to figure out how to make this again. And I get there eventually, but there's always this sort of re-education that happens. Like I had someone order a credenza over the summer and I hadn't made it in two years. And so I knew more or less what it would take, but I had to really go back and find some old cut lists that where, you know, it makes sense to you the day of, but two years later, like, I'm not entirely sure what I meant when I wrote that down. <laughs> and so, you know, I kind of have to go through it again. So yeah, it's kind of, it just depends on the piece, you know, again, like I said, the chairs, there's templates and patterns that kind of simplify all that, but then other pieces, some of it's just memory, you know, like a lot of the tables I do, it's a two inch turns leg, you know, I know it's a two inch leg. So when I'm getting materials for it, I'm thinking I need, uh, you know, like five quarter roughs on and glue some blanks from the same board to get a two inch leg, stuff like that. And I don't have a paper trail for those kinds of things. It's an interesting setup when you're building a collection of furniture because like you said, with that credenza, you built it two years ago and you probably actually designed it, you know, four years ago or something like that. And in that time, you have changed with your skills and the way you go about things. Probably your tools have changed. Yeah. Wood is always as a natural building material. It's always changing. So in every single piece you do, there's different grain, there's different looks of the wood. And so that's always a constant change. But yet you have to replicate a piece that is from a picture. And it, it does it does paint you into a little bit of a corner. And that's why a lot of people like to go with custom work because they can do it differently every time. But when you have that collection of furniture, you are boxed in and you have to reproduce that. Yeah. I feel like there's, it's kind of a fork in the road as far as strategies concerns. I was doing custom work and signature pieces for at least a couple years. And I totally understand the appeal for custom work because there's always someone asking for something very specific made to these dimensions for this space. And I totally understand it. And I still do custom work. Um, I, I just finished some custom pieces in the last couple of weeks. I feel like I'll always do custom work, but the reason I really put emphasis on the signature pieces and my own designs, there's a few reasons. One is I'm passionate about finding my own designs. That's something that really interests me and finding my own voice as a furniture maker, my own way of expressing the way something should look proportionally and just the overall aesthetic of a piece to me is is interesting to me and so i'm going to do that no matter what and even if i kind of stumble my way forward to make a piece from two years ago it's what i'm excited about and if you know when you do custom work it's so hard to cover your hours and cover your cost you know it's a piece you've never done before and you may you probably will never do it again and I think it's very easy to, you know, hemorrhage money and time. And 
now you're in it now you're committed you have to finish it you've been paid a deposit or whatever it is you got to see it through and so i know how that goes and sometimes they go somewhat smoothly but then when it's a signature piece it's there is at least somewhat of a paper trail i do have these cut lists i do save the my little notepads from the pieces and you know i i'm making something that is my idea of uh, a certain design or piece my idea of a table my idea of a dresser or chair and that's also another reason you know why i have maybe more designs than you might expect you know i don't have like three or four designs because i also like diversity you know i don't want to make the same chair week in and week out so i kind of go with the the wind a little bit you know people will a designer will say oh i want you know 10 rosemont chairs and that's great and that's a good order and i love that but then if someone came right behind that person and said i want 10 more I'd be like oh my god man i'm making 20 of the same chairs like i need to do something else and so i've tried to have a range of designs and just cross my fingers that the workflow the production schedule is such that there's a variety of designs because that's when I feel like most content, you know, I'm, I'm making a piece that I really like and enjoy and like to see it through and, and then do another piece that's kind of different. And the variety to me is really important. So, you know, it's a variety of my own designs is kind of the sweet spot. You know, if you're doing custom work, there's always variety, but um, if you're doing your own designs to me, it's one of the things that I feel like I just have realized about myself. You know, I'm not really interested in, having a super busy schedule where I'm just making anything that comes my way. I mean, I, I want to stay busy, of course, but I want to prioritize making my own work and doing my own designs so that I feel um, fulfilled, you know, from one week to the next. Yes, it is important to feel fulfilled and that you are living your dream, so to speak, and you feel good about the day you put in but it's a business and if your schedule isn't full then it's very hard to run that business so over the years how have you gotten to the point where you are getting orders for 10 shares and then right after 10 shares and you are staying busy with your collection of furniture because a collection of furniture is much different than custom furniture. Custom furniture, you have a built-in audience because they are telling you they want this. But for a collection of furniture, you are putting it out there, your own designs, your own ideas, and hoping people also like it. So how have you been spreading the word of your furniture company? And what do you feel like are the best practices for doing that? Right. Yeah. It's, it's, well, one thing I would say is I don't have a big ego about what my work should be. Meaning if there's nothing for me to do, then I'll do anything. So, you know, especially early on, like my first year I was doing, I did some carpentry where um, there was a client who would pay me by the hour and I, I uh, totally remodeled his kitchen. And basically the agreement I reached with my wife, cause I was, jumping from being an employee at a furniture shop and the stability that comes with that. And we had our second kid on the way. <laughs> I picked a hell of a time to, to, to jump out. 
I basically told her and myself, you know, I'll do whatever it takes to stay busy. So the carpentry has always been a big parachute for me. I feel like um, if I ever had to make bread, I could do some, I can find a way to earn money. What I did over the course of, you know, the last four years and even before the last four, I was making custom pieces when I was still an employee is I basically invest my time and resources into those pieces. And, and that means getting them photographed. It means actually making the pieces. So I think a lot of people can get, get sort of paralyzed with trying to make a design and it just kind of lives in their head for too long. And I'm much quicker to, or at least I try to be quick to manifest the ideas so it is sellable. There's kind of a slow burn aspect to it where, you know, if you make a really nice chair, I keep saying chairs, I don't know why it keeps coming to me first, but if you make a nice piece, who are these people that are gonna buy that piece, even if it looks great and it's, it's got a nice picture on a website. So I had another strategy early on that I picked up on from when I was an employee at the furniture shop, which is so much of their residential work was through interior designers. So that to me was a huge breakthrough, just uh, having a, a strategy for staying busy. You know, I, I basically set my sights on getting a decent website with a pretty sparse portfolio, but at least showing what, what I can do and then reaching out to designers in my area, which, you know, here in Maine, New England, and trying to develop relationships with interior designers. That to me is a sustainable way to stay busy. You know, interior designers to me are, they're kind of like an engine for furniture makers. I think there are other ways to do it, but that was a clear goal for me. So I developed a relationship with a handful of designers and one in particular I worked with for the better part of three years we, we still do projects together but she just kind of loaded me up you know i would make something for her project and then she'd say well here's the next one and i think if you deliver to designers what they're asking for and you're on time and you make a nice product they will keep working with you and so if you have that as kind of like a backdrop and then in my mind i'm like well i want to push my own designs you know now i have this working relationship with designers and I can say, uh, you know, here is my road desk. Do you, do, you, do you think you can see this piece in one of your upcoming projects? And you can start getting specific with your own pieces. So if, if I say to them, I have this desk, it's part of my collection, it's a new design, you know, do you think you can specify it in one of your projects? Oftentimes, one or more designers are willing to do that. You know, it is, I am, kind of leaving myself vulnerable to people, you know, not liking what I'm doing. So that's inherent to prioritizing your own designs. You're trusting that enough people will like it and want to buy it. I'm willing to take that risk because that's what I'm passionate about. And I feel like I can always fall back on other methods. You know, there's always going to be someone who says, I need a vanity. I need a built-in stuff like that. I feel like is always out there. And if I, need to pivot to that in order to stay busy, then I'm, I will definitely do that because, you know, what, what other choice is there? It's always good to have a fallback plan, a plan B, you know, not all your eggs in one basket, however you want to say it. I could, I could go on, but, yeah, yeah. but one of the best ways to make sure 
you don't have to use your other plans and you can stick with your original plan. And for you, the original plan is building a collection of furniture and selling that is the selling it part and making money from it. Now, your collection of furniture is a repeatable thing. So you have built these before. So how do you price your pieces from your collection? The pricing is so challenging, I think, generally. There are certain pieces where I find I do well. Like, I feel like I do well on tables um, and people are willing to pay a premium for a table. And I feel like I really squeak by on chairs. Chairs are so time consuming and the margins are just tighter. So what I do just as a general practice is I have what I think my shop rate should be. Uh, I'll put it out there because I have I was curious when I was getting into it. So to, in my experience, most shops out there, say like in my area in Portland, Maine, they're like 85 to 100 bucks an hour for a shop rate. And, you know, that could be, I think CNC time can be a different price point, but, you know, roughly 85 to 100. I'm sure there's others that are higher. So my shop rate for a long time, like in the first year, I was trying to make 25, 30 bucks an hour. You know, I was hustling. And then for a while I sat on 50, 50 bucks an hour. And then this past year I just hit 60 and it's still low compared to the competition, but the, there's a conundrum that happens. You know, if you just use a shop rate as a multiplier, you know, oh, I think this project's gonna take 12 hours or let's say 10 hours for some easy math. So that's like 600 bucks. Well, I don't sell anything for 600 bucks. You know, all these pieces take time. And if that shop rate is multiplied by your hours in the shop, things can get out of hand really fast. So it helps to have an employee who, uh, you know, makes less than me is kind of part of that shop rate and can contribute to getting pieces in and out, make things more profitable. When I do invoicing, it's all line item stuff. So I have costs for finishing, I have costs for materials, hardware, uh, labor, et cetera. And you just multiply by 60 for the labor rate, shop rate, and then you get kind of a bottom line number. And then these things get pretty expensive. So to me, it's always, it's always lurking, you know, trying to keep your schedule, production schedule full, trying to get deposits and be solvent as a business. One thing I did that has really helped a lot is for my shop and it's, it's on our side lot on our property. So my shop space is rolled into our mortgage. It's kind of an unusual circumstance, but it's just the way I was able to do it. I didn't want to be on a commercial lease, you know, like a five, 10 year lease where you're paying two, three, four grand a month to have a shop space. And you've got this big nugget just hanging over your head every month. You know, I, I did not want that. I wanted to keep my overhead low so that I could make these pieces that I want to make. That was kind of my general approach. Yeah. That you gotta, you gotta make the money somewhere. <laughs> right. Right. You know, I mean, it, and it's, I will say I kind of, have been on this personal crusade, especially with designers, but clients too, um, where I, I tell them straight up, I'm like, look, this is my shop rate. This is how long a chair takes to make. When you put it all together, you know, it's a $1,500 chair, whatever the number is. And I have found that a lot of times when I break it down like that, people are amenable to how you get those numbers. You know, a lot of people have this sort of shell shock when you price something out the designers, not so much because they're in the industry, but um, they there's this initial like, oh, my God. And then 
you break it down. I don't try to, I don't try to hide behind just some blank number with no, no details to it. And I kind of want them to say to themselves, you know, this is what, this is what it costs and takes to make a chair, you know, and I understand that and I'm willing to pay for it. You know, I think that it's not a high number given, you know, as you know, making this stuff is difficult. It takes a lot of machinery and skill and ability and uh, experience. And my goal has been to try to convince as many people as possible, at least the ones I'm interacting with, like this is how you get to these numbers and it makes them a little more willing to pay for it. It's all about that communication because yeah. so many people, and especially over this past year or so, so many people have just gotten used to seeing something on a computer screen, clicking buy now. And that's the entire transaction. There's no behind the curtain, seeing how things are made, thinking about the time, the energy, the passion that goes into making something. And people are removed from the final product in that way. And when you're building something, a, a handmade piece of furniture, something that's made to last, something that's heirloom quality, there's more that goes into it than just what people see at the end of the day that they see sitting in their living room. So that communication is, is a part of the story. And the story is what people are paying for because you can just buy a chair anywhere, but this chair that they're buying from you has that backstory. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, like you said, the communication part to me is huge because, you know, for one thing, it distinguishes me from some random website or something that's made overseas. You know, you're emailing with me directly or a phone call or whatever it might be. And uh, I just try to be as forthcoming as possible. I feel like when you do that or when I do that, in my experience, it makes people, it builds trust. You kind of get into these abstractions, but if it's someone you've never worked with or a, a repeat client or designer, the trust factor to me is is worth a lot. You know, they that will help you stay busy. You know, if someone trusts you and knows you as an individual, views you as someone who does work with integrity, a product that you can stand by or a piece that you can stand by, that to me is a great way to stay busy. There's something to be said for reputation, even in 2021. There are still people who appreciate the personal interaction and building trust and having relationships. I feel like that still has relevance if you can just find those people. Yeah, building your building skills is important, but building your connection skills, building your reputation is just as important to building a business as building good furniture and sometimes even more important. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that there are a lot of furniture makers and woodworkers who are um, very skilled, very capable, can make anything, but they're not very good with people. And if you're trying to run a business, you're trying to build the trust and the reputation. If you don't have that temperament, it can be very hard to stay busy. So I, I think that's totally true. I feel like I'm very quick to say making a high quality product or piece of furniture 
is not enough. You need more than that to have a sustainable business. You know, that's kind of like a minimum. I don't mean that to sound like deflating. It's more just like being realistic about what it would take to have longevity. You know, you can't just build nice things. You have to, you know, like a, or at least the way I'm going about it, you know, I'm, I know that there are a lot of ways to do it, but the way I'm going about it is I need these people to associate the pieces I'm making with me as a person or my business. Um, and that is one of my strengths. You know, I mentioned like, I'm not good with drawing stuff on SketchUp. It takes me forever, but I'm good with people. I'm good with uh, getting clients to trust what I'm doing, to communicate with them, to be clear about what they're getting, what stuff costs. You know, that's been a strength of mine and it keeps people coming back, I think. I know I say this a lot and a lot of people listening have have told me that I say this a lot. So if you're keeping track at home, I I, I appreciate you keeping me honest, but it is a furniture business. It's it's two things. It's the building the furniture and the business side of it. And you just can't forget that. Right. Let's go into something that is one step, a very small step under pricing for being a frustrating thing for businesses. And that is shipping your furniture because yeah. it is easy to build a piece of furniture, drop it off at a client's house that is two miles away, 10 miles away, 20 miles away. But it is a whole nother animal to build something on the East Coast, ship it to the West Coast or anywhere in between. And that is almost a separate business in itself because, well, I, I don't, I don't know. Let's let's talk about how you work with shipping. I don't want to I don't want to preface it. Maybe you are great at it and you can share with people the the best practices and and how they can do it. Yeah, I I feel like shipping is inescapable in in the furniture world. You know, I do much prefer pieces in New England. I can do various options that are reliable and pretty affordable. You know, there's uh, moving companies and courier companies, and I can have stuff crated and the, the fuel and freight stuff is, is more manageable. You know, I, I've done my share of shipping pieces all over to the West Coast and places in between to Ohio and all over, all over, you know, and I've, I don't know if I would recommend one way over the other. Like, I don't really like to make crates, but I I have done it and there is a benefit to it. I mean, it's great to make a crate and know 100% that it is well packed and um, intact and, and all those things, you know, like I, I get it. Like I, I made a crate not that long ago for a chair, just one chair going to Alabama and I packed the hell out of that thing and I knew it was going to get there perfectly, but I had to make the crate and, you know, I, account for time and materials, but it's just another thing that you're doing in the shop, which I personally, my preference I know is to do blanket wrap delivery. Um, me personally, I feel like it's, you know, I, these, these people will come to my shop, wrap the piece uh, fully in blankets. It goes away in a truck and it emerges in California and it's insured and they bring it into the client's home. It's, that's really great because if it's a crate, You've got this other variable of like, 
well, this crate gets to its destination, who is going to deal with this crate? Someone's got to unscrew it and dispose of the materials. And, you know, that can be problematic for some clients. So the blanket wrap thing is great. And very few people are opposed to that that sort of way of doing it. What the problem is, is the cost. I basically, again, going back to the transparency thing, I do an invoice or an estimate and I say, here's labor, materials, finishing, hardware, uh, freight and delivery with insurance. And people can look at it line by line and you see that the shipping is expensive and you know they just kind of take it or leave it. You know, budgets are so high to begin with. If you say freight is a thousand dollars, they're just kind of like, great, when are you going to ship it? And those are the ideal scenarios in my mind. You have clientele where the percentage of the table or chairs I'm sending is not that great compared to their overall project or budget. And so they kind of just, they just cut a check and off you go. You know, to me, Again, my, my recommendation is if a client's willing to pay for a blanket wrap delivery, it's ideal. It's just, you know, if they're willing to pay for it. That white glove delivery is nice. You always want to get the insurance. I've shipped things all over the world and some have not shown up the way they left the shop. So yes. always, always get the insurance. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, I did a table once that went to the Bay Area and the base they, they, the company uh, packed the, they did their own kind of makeshift creating. I'll never use them again. This is something I'll mention too, just for anyone who's like looking into it. I, I used a shipping company that I was familiar with and had a good reputation and got in their queue for them to pick up a table. And they subcontracted my table to another freight company, unbeknownst to me. So the table gets out to California and the designer opens it up and they had shipped the table upright. It was a pedestal table and, you know, they didn't, uh, you know, it would make sense to ship it upside down, you know, any number of ways, but the base was basically like destroyed. And I found out after the fact that the company I thought was doing the delivery paid another company to ship it. And the only thing that saved me was the insurance. Um, and, you know, the insurance is good, but, that's another conundrum too, because now if you've got a, a full schedule, now you've got a client, it's a rush. They're like, hey man, this table is damaged. Like, when are you gonna fix this? And now you gotta work in this this new this redo. Um, so insurance is covering it, but it's not fun. It's um and also I would say the more you do it, it's bound to happen at some point or another. Like you just run into issues, you gotta learn how to roll with it. Now you've had a long career in different parts of the building world and in different places all across the country. So so you have had a lot of experience in this industry. Now, there are people who are looking to get into the furniture building industry, the furniture business, and they don't know where to start. They don't know where to jump in or, or when the right time to make that that leap is and there are people who have been been doing this for a long time and feel like they should be further along than they are or feel like there's something else that they're missing that would propel their business to where they want it to go so for you 
talking to everybody out there, what are some things that you would recommend from your experience that have helped you over the course of your career? Well, it'll be tough for me not to sound kind of vague, at least in part. I I think one thing that um, you, anyone has to have is a very strong work ethic. Uh, There is no substitute for putting in the time and investing your money, your resources, all your energy into making something happen, making it take off. So that can manifest in infinite ways what that looks like. But if you don't have that sort of baseline daily drive to make progress, I think it's a really difficult path. You know, I feel like that is how you get stuck or you lose time. You know, you can lose years of time just plotting and planning and not trying to execute and just put in the energy. So um, that part to me really is the the starting point, I think, for anybody to see the, the progress they're looking for happen. You have to have drive, you have to have strong work ethic, you have to be willing to work any day of the week, seven days a week. And I'm not saying that's where, where I'm at now, but um, there are these periods of time where you got to grind because you're trying to get to the next part. And then say for furniture makers in particular, you know, we have happened to choose a profession that's expensive to get into. You know, you need machines. You know, I would argue that you really can't make furniture without some basic machines like a joiner, planer, table saw, bandsaw. This is kind of a handful of machines that you really need to make stuff and it all costs money. So again, that drive comes in, you know that you need these machines. How am I going to get the money to make these machines? Well, you have to take on projects, take on work. It may not be glamorous. It may not really be related to furniture necessarily, but if it gives you the money you need to invest in machinery, then you know, you got to do it so you can get to the next step. And then you need a space to do the work. There's a lot of those things that to me, you have to have to get off the ground. You need a space to work. You need machines, you need a strong drive. And I would say for a while now, you need a decent website. Hopefully you have some pretty good pictures. So anyone who has never heard of you punches your name into the computer, they have some notion of what you're doing it's just the nature of it. You're trying to do a lot of things at the same time and some things move quicker than other things and accumulating machines and portfolio website. Those are all the different things you're trying to do. And I feel like if you have that consistent drive and energy to keep going, then the results will come from there. Building something from nothing. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with me, talking about your journey, your story, your business, and really sharing that experience that you've had in the industry with everybody listening. I really do appreciate it. And I wish you all the best luck with your company and your business moving forward. Thanks, Ethan. I really appreciate it. It was great to talk to you today. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. 
and feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at thebuildwithethan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network, the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.